Hey, hey, tree huggers. Good morning. Welcome back. We're here to talk about a very special topic today, given that it is Autism Awareness Month. What we're going to be bringing you today is a very important concept that we use across all of our populations here and really with any kid we come in contact with, not just children with autism, and it is presuming competence. We're going to break that down for you, what exactly presuming competence means, why it's so important, and who is it for. And then we're going to give you some hot tips. Perfect. Mm-hmm. Let's start with a little history. I like history. All right. So when Stacy and I first got together and were treating, we thought we did a fairly decent job of presuming competence of the clients that we were working with. And then we decided, no, we, we weren't. We went to Autcom. Mm-hmm. This was back in 2008. It's a conference, and it's run largely by people with autism. And what we realized was we made a lot of assumptions, mm-hmm. and we didn't necessarily recognize that some of those assumptions were limiting. Um, we, we watched the way people moved or the way that they communicated, and we made certain assumptions about what they could or couldn't do even though we were try- we thought we weren't. Mm-hmm. But then when we saw the possibilities within these people with their poetry and their, um, art. their art and their humor, and we saw, like, wow, we didn't go quite big enough, quite deep enough. We didn't put the thought that what would they do if their body could move the way they wanted to? What could they say if they could talk the way they wanted to and they didn't have, you know, apraxia and these movement differences getting in their way? And I really think it was coming to a full understanding of movement differences that was changing for us. So if you think of, let's talk about intelligence testing in general. Any type of an intelligence test that's out there requires motor output, whether it is a building task, a writing task, some sort of a fine motor, visual motor coordination task, or actually an oral motor task of of using the motor components of speech. Mm -hmm. If you have an individual, like oftentimes our our individuals who are somewhere on the autism spectrum have, as well as many of our clients who just have uh, dyspraxia or apraxia, they have underlying movement differences, movement different challenges, meaning they have a hard time making their body do exactly what it is they want them to do. They have a hard time starting motor movements. They have a a difficult time sort of sequencing them together, coordinating, making their body do exactly what they want to do. And I think, Terry, from a speech perspective, I think what I learned from you a long time ago, which maybe other communication people might not notice, is that this is not always easy to see. You might see them move their body, their legs, their fingers in other contexts and think, well, they can do it. They're just not doing it. And therefore, these movement differences can be labeled as behaviors, Mm -hmm. which can be very misleading when you don't understand what it means to initiate that motor pattern all the time and volitionally um, versus when it happens automatically. And then you just think, well, they can do it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. A little experiential right now, I want you to play a game with us. And without using spoken words or speech, and without moving your body at all, I simply want you to answer the following question. What is your favorite color? Purple. That's using motor speech. Oh, I can't. using movement. You can't. Oh, shucks. (laughs) 
Hmm. Exactly. How are you going to express that? And a lot of our, our clients have these motor challenges. So how can you assume, would I, would I assume that you don't understand my question? Would I assume that you don't have a favorite color? What are the assumptions that you make without this understanding of motor differences? However, if I was going to presume competence, I would presume that you, A, understood my question, and B, do have a favorite color. And then, thereby, it would be my job as a therapist or as a parent or as a friend to try to facilitate that answer. And that's what we do in therapy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Good. So let's talk a little bit, too, of one of our favorite things. It's an article that we have here that's called The Least Dangerous Assumption that we like to share with parents. Mm -hmm. And really, what it gets at is that it's very dangerous to put those ceilings on kids, and it's very dangerous to make those assumptions. Why would you think it's dangerous, Mm. Terry, to assume that? Well, if I just simply ask you the question, what's your favorite color, and I assumed because you couldn't respond to me that you're not interested, that you don't have a favorite color and that you didn't understand. How am I going to interact with you? What am I going to offer you with regard to information and Mm -hmm. learning opportunities? What am I going to offer you with regard to the ability to make choices and express yourself to potentially make a choice of something as simple as what are you going to watch on TV? What book are we going to read? And all of those things that Terry is describing, what does that get in the way of is a relationship. Mm-hmm. So, so many times I hear, we hear that they're not interested in this or that. They're not interested in making friends. People with autism, they, experience, they uh, demonstrate parallel play, but they have a hard time or they don't have a lot of friends and they are not interested in making friends. All of these are very dangerous assumptions because when you make assumptions about someone, then you're deciding their limitations mm-hmm. for them. Why would we decide for someone that they don't want to have a friend? And like Terry said in her example with asking me what my favorite color is, if, I, if she decides that I don't have a favorite color and I'm a little kid, well, then maybe I'm going to decide you don't have a lot of thoughts about anything. So okay. then, therefore, am I going to want to connect with you? I might speak for you. I might do things for you. And when you're doing this and you, you um, it's going to, like Stacey mentioned, interfere with your relationship, on the flip side, it can also be a cause of quite a few behavior challenges it that can. we see. Mm-hmm. And then when we, again, have that assumption of some kind of impairment or challenge and we've assumed too much and then we see the behavior, then we're very quick to label that behavior as just a fire that we need to put out when in essence behavior is communication and we need to be trying to figure out what that behavior is communicating. But if we've already assumed you don't have anything to say, I mean, clearly we're just mm-hmm. – uh, putting out fires. Mm-hmm. So. so this least dangerous assumption article that Stacy mentioned, we will post a link on our webpage that um, you can actually read the article, but it provides two scenarios for you. You've got uh, an individual who has limited spoken and, and written language mm-hmm. and two different scenarios. You travel down two different rows with the same person. One, you presume competence of this individual. They're placed in a regular education classroom. They are offered opportunities to intake information. They are spoken to in a way that presumes that they're understanding and have thoughts and feelings. And is respectful. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And then the other road would be, well, you're put into a classroom where there aren't a lot of opportunities to gather that information. 
Mm-hmm. Friendships are not necessarily facilitated emphasized. or supplied or emphasized, and it's just presumed that your IQ is low enough that you don't necessarily understand. Now, in both of these scenarios that are presented, you have the same individual, and then you have the dangerous assumptions and the ceilings, and then you have the presumption of competence model. And ultimately, what it discusses is which one was more harmful to that child, which one would have hurt their development more. Even if we, let's say we presumed too high, we were like, oh, we didn't know that she didn't understand X and Y, but we'd always reached for it. If we had never reached for it, what kind of uh, danger do we put their development into? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Okay. (laughs) She's doing her excellent voice again. Excellent, Stacey. I like your description. Well, let's, let's go through some practical tips of what we can do as therapists, as parents, as teachers, as family members for um, our kids and adults who have autism, for individuals who have motor planning challenges, who have cerebral palsy, who have Down syndrome, who have some dyspraxic challenges. These. Oh, and I was going mm, to throw in please. there. Um, Really for any child. Uh, You know, we've talked about positive discipline strategies. We use that here. But this presumption of competence, we can use with any child at any time because you're going to, in that presumption of competence, you're going to empower people. The other thing I wanted to mention, and Mm -hmm. um, Terry was explaining something so beautifully, so I forgot about it, is the trust that it builds. Mm, Absolutely. When When that child goes from not having any expectations, not being able to organize their body or organize their communication, and then they meet someone who looks deeply into their soul and is like, okay, I know that you have a thought, or I know that you probably have a favorite color. Let's figure out what that is. The trust that that builds into that relationship, and I feel like that's why Terry and I, as we've grown in this model and grown in our ability to reach kids like this, we can kind of be the kid whisperer because we're in there and they know that we're trusting them and they're trusting us. And within that relationship, we can make a lot of changes. Mm -hmm. So Great. Yeah. Excellent. Going back to those tips. I I won't interrupt again. Oh, that's all right. (laughs) These tips help foster that trust. And kind of like what Stacey was talking about, the first tip that I've got here says, if possible, let's let the individual explain um, or, or talk for him and herself. And, and don't speak for them. So that's where our speech and language pathologists here at Family Tree, as well as our OTs, work together to find a way to make this possible. Mm-hmm. And even if you're, well, we'll talk more about uh, mm-hmm. different tips as we go, but that not filling in the gaps, that providing some space, pr- that just providing a little bit of patience and waiting and not jumping in and assuming, that that's um, a really nice regulatory strategy mm-hmm. as well and provides that trust. And some of the ways that we can support this communication, it might be the use of dry erase boards, it might be the use of drawing out pictures, um, using gestures offering opportunities to use uh, a digital device to communicate, whether that is an iPad or a a phone, Mm -hmm. um, some picture symbols, a simple alphabet strip. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And oftentimes here, we utilize something called look, touch, and say, which Mm -hmm. is the same thing. We're organizing their vision. We're encouraging them to look in the direction of something we know they need to choose or something that they're desiring and then we're encouraging the say part uh, is variable depending on their skill level mm-hmm. so but if we were, think about vision as motor and what it takes from a motor perspective to coordinate you've got six muscles on one eye six muscles on the other eye you've got 12 muscles that need to coordinate together um, and if your vision is kind of all over the place what does that do you we can access their vision to help 
organize their their thoughts. Right. And again, supporting that movement difference and understanding that something's not necessarily behavioral if it has a foundation mm-hmm. in, within their body. Mm-hmm. Uh, number three on our list is speak directly to the person with the challenges, not to the person that is taking care of them. Mm-hmm. Very, very important. Obviously, if that person is not in a situation where they can communicate their ideas, you're still talking with respect. And then oftentimes I will maybe excuse myself from the conversation and say, sorry, Johnny, I'm going to just ask mom really quick. Mm-hmm. And I will explain to them why I might be addressing my question toward mom or dad or grandma or grandpa. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We're going to want to, when you are speaking directly to the individual, you're going to want to talk using an age-appropriate voice and actually an age-appropriate topic as well. So just because you cannot communicate does not mean that a 14-year-old boy wants a sticker of Elmo on him or wants you to talk to him like this. Correct. Correct. We'll often hear, you know, something like that where you'll see like uh, age-appropriate, inappropriate uh, books or stickers, maybe talking a little bit louder than you need to, and all of it being well-intentioned ways to connect, but at the same time, then you're not presuming that competence and that age-appropriateness that that child might want to Mm -hmm. hear about. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We're going to really want to focus on what the individual can do. Mm -hmm. What are their strengths? What motor uh, plans do they have? Is it their visual system? Is it uh, their fingers? Is it typing? Mm -hmm. What can we tap into Mm -hmm. to, to help them express themselves? Correct. We're also going to include this in IEPs and goal planning because oftentimes just including this model can make different social goals, Mm -hmm. different uh, communication goals, obviously as Terry was talking about with the motor planning goals. So understanding this presumption of competence, you're then going to build that into goal planning. Mm -hmm. Um, We're going to find a a way to include this individual in, in our conversation. Not just in the goal planning, but in the con- any conversation that we're having. Mm-hmm. Um, we're also going to want to make sure that we allow enough time. That's a big one. Big one. Big one. That could be a whole separate podcast. That could be a separate one. Because oftentimes when we give our talks, we sort of will make eye contact with people for a long amount of time and give them a little bit of space to try to come up with an answer. And oftentimes, did you know, and I think she probably knows this, she's heard it before, we give kids about two seconds to respond. Mm-hmm. which is what we do as adults to fill in our own discomfort. So especially when we're talking with someone who might have a communication challenge, I would presume that we might try to go super fast for that person and mm-hmm. fill in the blanks. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We're going to want to teach peers and other people who are uh, interacting with this child to interpret some of these challenges, to understand motor planning, to point out times when we see, oh, did you see this and this and how he could do this in this situation, but in this situation he might need your help in this way, and really helping to bring in the experience of everyone that's in that child's environment to learn how to communicate and how to see these movement differences and how to presume competence. Mm -hmm. And if you are the parent or the therapist or the caregiver and you want to speak on this individual's behalf, ask their permission first before you share information. Mm-hmm. Johnny, would you mind if I told mom what we did in therapy today? Mm-hmm. That's really good. Mm-hmm. And not speaking in front of someone as if they're not there. Ooh, that's that's a big one. I think it's, like, like we said, not necessarily done intentionally, but when that person can't respond, and then just imagine if I couldn't respond, Terry asked me what my favorite color was, and my friend Sherry was next to me, and she said red. It's definitely red. But in my head, I know what my color is. Can someone do something to help facilitate that. Mm-hmm. That frustration that can build can end up looking like a behavior mm-hmm. later if I act out. 
And these strategies all sound simple. They sound easy. They make perfect sense when you're listening to this. Mm -hmm. The implementation can be difficult, mm -hmm. especially across varying environments. And that's what we do here at Family Tree, our OTs, our speech therapists, and what we work to empower all of our parents and caregivers and clients themselves to figure out how we can help with all these techniques. Exactly. And I do think... Um, it's a little daunting at first to take a look at your own behavior, your own communication style, and say, where might I be limiting this individual? But once we did it, when we went to Otcom, I thought it was really exciting and comforting, and uh, I felt closer to the kids I worked with. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right, well, we're going to be putting our presuming competence tip sheet online along with the least dangerous assumption, and I guess that's it. All right. All right. See, See you later. later.